And welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calagares, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and your host for this episode. I was just recently reviewing the most, uh, the latest issue of Pragmatic Marketer, and in there was an article titled, How SaaS Broke Your Buyer Journey Map and How to Fix It. And I just found this article and this concept fascinating, and so I invited Dennis Chepernov, the author, onto the show. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me today. Oh, a genuine pleasure. All right. First, just to give a little context to our audience, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'd be happy to. So um, I work in uh, enterprise software marketing. I work for a company called Highland Software, where I manage product marketing for a portfolio of products. And I've been in this space for about 15 years now, working for companies of different size and different industries, but always kind of maintaining this focus on B2B software, um, the B2B software buyers and their processes and how we can best align our products to, to match those. Excellent. So if you've been in this industry for 15 years and you've seen a whole lot of change, you've seen sort of the advent and growth of buyer journeys, for instance, and a buyer journey map. Tell me a little bit about buyer journey maps and, and what those mean to you. Sure. Well, I, I think we're, we're all familiar with that concept on the sales and marketing side, right? Buyer journeys, uh, buyer journey maps are these nifty little uh, visual tools that help us identify the various stages through which a buyer goes when they're making a decision to purchase a particular type of solution. And then we use those usually internally to help align our um, sales and marketing tactics to develop content that fits these different uh, journey stages and, and ultimately make sure that, that we're providing the buyers the information uh, they need at every stage of the process. And and you're right, th this has changed dramatically over the last decade or so. Um, you know, as one example, um, about 12 years ago, I was actually on the buying side of enterprise software. I worked for a company that was considering acquiring an invoice processing automation solution. And, um, you know, it, it was an onerous process. I mean, there were so many people involved. We had to assemble a whole team. So there were representatives from uh, the finance department. There were people from IT, people from operations, people from uh, several other departments just to make sure that we got the right solution and asked the right questions. And we had to develop... Um, functional requirements, identify vendors, view demos, have vendors over several times, review the vendor's proposals. Um, you know, usually that's the stage where you find out what your budget really is, right, is when the vendors submit their proposals. So then we had a lot of internal discussions about uh, what could we afford, where would we get the money, how can we secure that budget, and then finally working with the vendor to implement the solution, which wasn't really a, a quick and easy thing either, right? There were discovery sessions, there were various integration considerations, deployment, testing, proof of concept uh, tests, um, user testing, and so forth. And and so this was about 12 years ago, and, and I think it took us uh, over eight months to go through that process from beginning to end. So just to buy one solution took all these people with full-time jobs and um, 
to do this kind of in addition to their regular responsibilities. It took us about eight months to make this happen and actually get to the go live. And, and today the process has changed drastically. You know, with, with uh, especially with a lot of hosted solutions, um, the process is a lot faster. Yeah, just hearing your, the the old enterprise software, just being reminded of what that felt like. It's exhausting, right? It was such a huge investment. But with SaaS, to your point, it's very, very different. And, and the point that you make in the article that I find so interesting is that um, this really changes how you think about the buyer journey. And in particular, what you think about as the end of the buyer journey. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Of course. You know, traditionally, marketing has focused on sort of leading up to the sales taking over, right? So we always focused on sort of top of the funnel, lead generation, helping get those qualified leads to sales so that sales can then go on and take the buyer through the rest of the journey and demos and, and, and things like that. And, and and I, you know, typically marketing departments in traditional settings have disengaged at the point where the lead is passed on to sales. And they may still track as in terms of which leads close, right? So you, you paid a lot of attention to the lead conversion rates. Um, but we really didn't pay much attention to the buyer after that point, right? So when the when the buyer signed the contract, ultimately we counted that as a as a victory, and we moved on to repeat the process for new prospects. We, with SaaS, it's it's really um, it's really changed the whole buying process, right? So what the process that I talked about, which involved vendor interviews and budget requests and internal groups being put together to review the solutions and, and all those other things. SaaS is, you know, we, we tend to think of SaaS as primarily just a licensing and pricing model, right? But it, it changed so much beyond that, right? Pricing is definitely part of it. Um, you know, for one, pricing is readily available and more predictable, right? So it's, it's easier for us to, as buyers, to estimate what the solution will cost. But it's also changed, um, you know, the deployment model. So we no longer have to uh, consider purchasing hardware and uh, a lot of very um, complex uh, processes for integration and customizations. A lot of it is, has been streamlined with SaaS. And it's it's also changed, um, you know, kind of how customers view the buying process because it's so much easier to acquire SaaS solution, right? You can often pay for it with just a, uh, you know, operational budget. You don't need to go through the process of capital expenditure requests and then get all that um, approved with senior management. A lot of these buying processes now happen at, uh, you know, business unit level, department level, right? So you've, you've had sort of this democratization of the buy technology buying process, right? So pretty much anybody within the organization uh, can now, with just a corporate credit card, acquire a solution to, to serve their needs. And, and I think there is, there is definitely a benefit to this, right? So from a business group's perspective, you're thinking that, okay, well, we don't really have eight months or 10 months to go through this buying process, we need we need the benefit of the solution today, right? Um, so SaaS really allows that to happen. But on the other hand, because the uh, buying process is so much easier and faster with SaaS, uh, you also have a lighter degree of investment on the part of the buyer, right? And that leads the buyer uh, 
to basically this new buying mentality, right? In the past, we've had um, sort of the sense of responsibility for the buying decision, right? So when I when I was part of this buying group for the um, invoice processing solution we were considering 12 years ago, by the time we got this, you know, the solution, which together with hardware and licensing cost several hundred thousand dollars, you know, we felt responsible for the ultimate outcome of that project within our organization, right? We felt like we made the recommendation, we made the case to senior management. Now it was the burden of ROI was on us, on that team that made the decision to make sure that this solution actually worked. Now, with SAS, you have a much lighter process, right? As a buyer, you don't have to invest as much time. You don't have to invest as much money to uh, get started with, with a lot of these SAS solutions. And as a, as a result, there's also this sort of psychological shift where all of a sudden we don't feel as responsible for the ROI, right? We can try a solution. And if it doesn't seem to quite deliver the value we expected, it's just as easy for us to divest from it and try another one, right? There, there are always more. Mm -hmm. So so essentially, even when we sign on, you know, back to your question of what happens at the end of the buyer's journey, with SAS, there is no end of the buyer's journey. Every single time you renew your subscription, which may be monthly for some solutions, it may be uh, semi-annually or annually, quarterly, whatever it might be, every every time you sign that new invoice for payment, uh, as a buyer, you have the opportunity to consider whether you're still deriving the value you thought you would from that solution. So it's, it's like an ongoing, continual buyer journey, and we really have to be focused on helping them see the value, right? I think so, yeah. If the, if the burden of ROI shifts away from the buyer, it, the only place it has to go is to the vendor, right? Mm -hmm. So as a vendor, as a marketer, all of a sudden we have to start thinking beyond that close of the deal, right? We, we need to start considering how do we – how do we ensure that the customer actually retains us as the vendor through the uh, th through this repeated uh, subscription process? And and that's not a question that a lot of marketing departments are ready to answer, right? As I, as I mentioned, a lot of the marketing departments are structured to support the top of the funnel. And usually what happens after the customer becomes a customer is we stop being strategic, Right. Mm -hmm. So what, what I see a lot of uh, over my years in the industry is our only touch with the customer from the marketing standpoint becomes, you know, user groups or, um, you know, tips of the week kind of email subscription, which I think is very helpful for end users. But what it essentially does is it abandons the decision makers to which we try to um tailor our stories and tailor our products and demos throughout the early stages of the buying process, right? These people don't attend user group meetings, right? They, they, they made the initial decision or approved the decision to go with your product. Um, and then they basically step back and let their users adopt it and use it and listen for feedback. And if what they're hearing is that, gosh, this is really not working the way we saw with it in a demo or the way that we thought it would. Um, we don't really have another touch point with them um, on the marketing side to ensure that they're still happy and get that close that feedback loop. So how would you recommend that marketing engage with the buyer once they've moved from buyer to customer? 
Well, I think I think the tactical side is still good. We still need to engage the users, the end users, make sure they're trained, make sure there's adoption of our solution. So I don't think we need to uh, turn uh, the the user community engagement on on its head. But I think we need to come back to key marketing groups that were uh, engaged uh, during the design of the programs that help generate the leads and generate awareness uh, in the market. And, and those are groups like uh, marketing programs and those are group campaigns essentially, right? And those are groups like product marketing. Product marketing in particular are experts on buyers, um, their needs, industry, and how it all aligns to your company's portfolio of products, right? So these are key individuals who spend considerable time understanding the marketplace and their needs. And they're also very key to help sort of take uh, the buyer journey map to the next level, right? So after making the purchase, there is another level that suddenly opens up and that's that actually correlates to the true goal of our customers, right? They're, the end goal for our customers is not to buy a solution. The end goal for them is to derive business value from it, to solve a business problem. Right. So after the deal closes, product marketing can come back and help develop programs that help the company still work with those decision makers, help ensure that uh, they're seeing their, the return on investment, that they're deriving the value that they thought they would. And this is something product marketing can do in combination with, you know, professional services or account management team, whatever is appropriate for the for the organization in question. But, you know, some possible ideas might be things like, um, uh, maturity models, right? So you could you could have a maturity model that the product marketing team develops and then uh, shares with with the account management team to share with the customer, and that's a quick uh, visual tool to kind of help customer understand that hey, you're here, and we can help you get here, and then later we can help you get there, and this is how you you would compare them to other peers in your industry. Those are great tools that help customers understand that the vendor is a strategic partner in this solution rather than just somebody who cashes their checks after the deal is signed. Um, you know, worksheets that could be developed again and shared with the professional services or account management team to further engage customers and ensure that they're still staying strategic about this, not, not just focusing on the end users. And I think that's important, too. I often think um, you have to help them see the ROI. You have to help them realize what metrics that they should be watching and why those matter. And I think something like a maturity model can be a great way not only to show progress, but to aspire to continue to go deeper. So I think that could be very powerful. I think so. And I think really it can be extended, um, you know, beyond... Uh, organizations that uh, create software or enterprise software, right? Pretty much any product now, if you think about it, we are um, in the age where buying has changed across all aspects of our lives. And our buyers on the B2B side are buyers on the B2C side when they come back home, right? And they log on to some of their favorite online shopping stores and, uh, when they when they uh, log on to their smartphone and and look through the apps available, so this mentality of sort of 
buy to try, I think is permeating um, the marketplace at large, right? So it's not it's not surprising that customers are bringing that to the workplace and sort of expect that same uh, dynamic in terms of, uh, oh, I want to try this solution. This this looks kind of cool. Maybe it'll work for me. But if not, it's okay, right? Maybe I'll just spend you know a couple hundred bucks possibly on uh, on my corporate card to try it. We'll we'll give it a shot, and then if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. So. I think this applies to other organizations, right? Making that step beyond the sale and uh, starting to take customer retention and customer lifetime value more seriously and start tracking them as a marketing metric, right? I think this is where, again, we, we often fall short today is we don't think of customer retention and customer lifetime value as marketing uh, metrics, you know, they usually fall within sales or account management, but this is the, these are metrics that marketing can contribute to and and track as a measure of success. With that in mind, thinking about these metrics are often historically seen as the the domain of other departments. Do you ever see any pushback uh, when marketing says, "Hey, look, let's look at this differently," or is it just embrace for the the extra help? You know, I'm I'm yet to see any pushback on that, and it's it's not a question of really, you know, fighting for ownership of these numbers or for, uh, uh, you know, sort of the the glory of of who makes the numbers go up. It it's more of sort of an honest conversation, and um, um, it's something that, in my experience, other departments have been very willing to have that conversation and to have that sort of interlock of uh, key metrics of key performance indicators because at the end it helps focus the entire organization right so if if sales and uh, professional services and marketing all have all roll up you know to the same metric without a whole lot of other sort of degrees of separation it's a lot easier to to then focus the entire organization and, and make it part of the culture right it's i think it's it, it's it has to be a cultural shift almost to start thinking about it that way and i think we're, we're going to see more and more of that in the coming years yeah, and I also think that the information that you can you can gain when you look at those metrics can help you even improve your your top of the funnel activities, right? Because you don't just want to go after um, those leads that you sign the most. You want to go after those leads that are going to end up being the most profitable for the company, right? The biggest lifetime value. So using what you learn there to help segment and target your activities at the top of the funnel, I think, could also be very powerful. Absolutely. Once we start tracking those metrics, especially with the eye for marketing analytics, it it's going to influence your go-to-market strategy, and it should. I think it's just doing business smarter, and in the in the age where there is more competition than ever for every single industry and every single type of product. And then I think some traditional tools like win loss, but win loss at renewal times can be can also be a um a powerful addition to to looking at this longer buyer's journey. I I agree. You know, I've had a lot of luck with win loss, and and oftentimes, you sort of hear people say, "Well, 
our sales already does that, right? Our, our sales department mm -hmm. already tries to contact the, the lost opportunity and find out what happened. But well, what I've seen happen in reality is that you talk to the account manager, the sales executive, uh, and, and oftentimes they they have the sense that they really don't have the full story right so they they did they had some exchange with their stakeholder at the customer and they felt like they probably didn't get the full story about why we lost that opportunity and and what i found you know again surprising perhaps to some marketers is that sales are very open about uh, having product marketing in particular step in and say look if you can conduct this interview if you can get this person this buyer on the phone and talk to them and try and get a um, you know sort of objective picture about what their decision process was like and why we didn't make the cut um, sales is very much willing to help and I think they even value that it comes from sort of a third party within our organization, right? It's It comes from marketing, not from sales, because they feel like the customer is a little more disarmed, I think, and, mm -hmm. and less defensive about that that process. So so I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that um, win-loss analysis, the interview process um, is critical to to marketing, especially to product marketing, because those market insights from our real-life buyers is what's going to help us uh, develop better programs, develop better buyer personas, and better enable our sales teams to take our solutions to the market. I agree. And I do think that too often people think of win-loss just at the initial purchase decision and not at the did they renew or not. Um, and that can be powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if we, you know, if we're still just tracking the initial lead conversion, uh, we're missing this renewal conversion. And I think it needs to be a legitimate metric and the insights from why we, why customers renew and why they don't renew are very, very important. Absolutely. All right. So we talked a lot about a lot of stuff. Dennis, can you give me uh, two things that you think people should do differently starting tomorrow based on what we talked about today? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, the biggest shift that has to happen is for them to start thinking of customer retention as as more than just sort of a refunds department, right? So customer retention is not a process that gets activated when customer is about to defect. It's something that needs to be proactively tracked and managed and cultivated. And, um, you know, it's something that has to span multiple departments, right? So your account management team, marketing, various marketing functions need, all need to be engaged to really create programs that set up the customer for success, right? Because ultimately when they stop uh, their subscription, uh, they, they're basically stopped. <laughs> They've realized that they're not deriving the value and they basically failed with this particular product or this particular vendor and they're ready to move on. So uh, long-term goal, customer retention and ensuring customer success. Um, another thing I'd say is just don't stop being strategic, right? Right after the customer becomes a customer is a great time to continue that strategic relationship with their decision makers to ensure that um, these right buyers are still engaged in the conversation with your company. Awesome. All right, Dennis, I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. I'm going to put a link to your article in the description of the podcast so everybody can access it. Um, And that does it for today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 